Amen. Thank you, Jim. Let's uh, turn together to Scripture, to the book of Malachi. And we're going to read together from chapter 3. No, sorry, we're not. We're going to read together from chapter 2 and verse 17. It's page 961 in your pew Bibles. Page 961. Malachi chapter 2 and verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness, and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years." So I will come near to you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive aliens of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Amen. Father, we thank you that you are the one who is utterly unchanging. You're the God who is forever faithful. You're the God who, whose love is utterly dependable, utterly constant, always strong enough to save. And so we come before you in our weakness, in our fickleness, having failed in so many ways, and we, we look to the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the one who who loved us and gave himself for us on the cross, we ask for your forgiveness for the ways in which we have failed to be what we ought to be in Christ Jesus. And Father, in this time together under the authority of your word, may we hear the voice of our, 
of our good and faithful shepherd. May we know his nearness. And may we be changed by the unchanging God more into the image and likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ for our good and for your glory, we pray. Amen. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. I cannot begin uh, to tell you how pleased I was that I had an extra hour in my bed last night. I, I need my, I've always needed my sleep, but now more than ever, I need my sleep. How wonderful that God doesn't need his sleep. He is always alive, always alert, always aware, always ready, always prepared. If you have a crisis in your life at three o'clock in the morning, and you don't have to wait till nine o'clock in the morning to cry out to God for help. He who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. He is never unavailable. He is never jaded. He is never not at his best. He cannot tire. And yet our text today tells us that he does tire. He tires of the things that people say and do. You have wearied the Lord with your words, Malachi said to the people of God. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? Why do bad things happen to good people? And why do good things happen to bad people? Why do good people get sick and mistreated while bad people seem to prosper? Have you ever asked that question? I'm sure you have. I'm sure we all have at some point in our lives. It's a familiar question in Scripture. Why, why does my life seem so much harder than the lives of those who live only for themselves? I'm trying to do what's right. I'm trying to do what's good. And it's such a struggle. And things just seem to keep going wrong for me. Look at me. I pay my taxes. And there's my next-door neighbor driving around in his fancy car. And here I am struggling to make ends meet. It just doesn't seem fair. 
very familiar cry in Scripture and in the life of the saints. Why is it like this? Why and where? Why do bad things happen to good people? And where is God? Where is the God of justice? The psalmist says, this is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. Where is the God of justice? Maybe in Malachi's day, the people of God had unrealistic expectations, and that's understandable when you think about it. They've had all these years in Babylon, singing about Zion, sharing stories about how good it was to live in Jerusalem, and how hard it was now to be far from Jerusalem, to be in Babylon. All these years of of reminiscing about the good old days, back in Judah, back in Jerusalem. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There in the poplars, we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. They they were yearning for Jerusalem, yearning for Zion, yearning to be back as the people of God in the city of God for years. And then the Lord worked in the heart of Cyrus, the king of Persia. They were allowed to go back, 50,000 people went back to Jerusalem. It was a long and a dangerous and a difficult journey. They got to Jerusalem. They found it ruined. And then another long and difficult, dangerous journey, we might say, to rebuild the city, to rebuild the wall, eventually to rebuild the temple. All that's now been done. And maybe they believed that once they were back in Jerusalem, once Jerusalem had been rebuilt, the city of God, once the temple had been rebuilt, the house of God, then the people of God would live in this kind of heaven on earth place. They would, they would, they would know uh, safety and security and peace and joy without end. Maybe that's what they had expected. But here they were. The people of God and the city of God, the wall has been rebuilt, the temple has been rebuilt, and it's hard. It's not the way they expected it to be. And they look at others who haven't given what they have given to be the people, to, to, to be the people of God and the city of God. They look at others who are worshipping false gods, and their lives seem to be very comfortable. They seem to prosper. They seem to be healthy and strong, and all seems well. But it's so much harder for the people of God. What happened to the covenant? What happened to the promise? Didn't God promise to bless us? 
And Christians sometimes have the same experience. We come to Christ and we have unrealistic expectations. There is a time of exhilaration, excitement, all seems well. We are thrilled and overjoyed at this new life that we have come to know and to live in Christ. But then we get confused and we get discouraged as suffering comes. We didn't think that would be part of the picture. Suffering and struggles and strife. Loss, perhaps. Grief. Isn't life with Jesus supposed to be great? Isn't that what the minister told me? Isn't that what my friend told me? Isn't that what I was supposed to expect? Doesn't God love me? This is really hard, and sometimes this is really unfair. Sometimes I find myself thinking, life was a lot easier before I became a Christian, a lot more comfortable, a lot less struggling, a lot less suffering. We begin maybe to look longingly uh, to life before Christ or to those who are living without Christ. Where is justice? Where is the God of justice? Why was God wearied with these words? Well, I think the reason that He was wearied with their words is probably because they were so blind to their own needs. Remember this people crying out to God for justice? We've been looking at their lives, haven't we, over these past number of weeks? This people crying out to God for justice. It's a people who are divorcing their wives, casting them aside in order to be married to women who worship false gods. They are opening the door to pagan worship in the city of God. They are offering themselves defiled sacrifices. They are withholding from God that which is rightfully His, and they are denying even that God has loved them. And they cry for justice. They ought to be on their knees crying for mercy, not for justice. Justice is the last thing that they should be asking for. wonder if that sounds familiar to you. It sounds familiar to me. I can see the, the speck of, you know, the sawdust of sin in the eyes of others with others with crystal clarity, but when it comes to the big, you know, wooden plank of wickedness in my own eye, I can't see that. But if I see it, it's different. You know, it's different for me, my sin. And I'm sure we've all been there. We judge others differently from the way that we want to be judged or the way that we judge ourselves. And if you look at, at church history, you will see in all of the diverse context and cultures that the church has found itself within, the men and the women that God is pleased to use in wonderful ways are the men and the women who see the terrible reality of their own sin. They see their sin, and they see the seriousness of that sin. Does that mean that they're depressed? Does that mean that they're deflated? Does that mean that they are discouraged and despondent, that they are 
paralyzed by guilt and shame and despair? Absolutely not. The, the very opposite is true. These are the most glad and grateful people in the world. Why? Because they have cried to God for mercy. And in every generation, they have found this unchanging God to be the God of love and of mercy and of compassion and of grace. These are the people whom God has always been pleased to use in wonderful ways. I think of John Newton, the man who is famous for writing Amazing Grace. Towards the end of his life, his eyesight is gone, his memory is fading, he's beginning to, uh, to suffer and to struggle physically. And he says, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. These Israelites, rather than rejoicing in the mercy of God and the covenant love of God, these Israelites moan and demand and debate with God. As far as they are concerned, they are the ones who have been wronged. They deserve better from the hand of God. God's ungrateful, ungodly children have wearied Him with their works. They claim that God doesn't know the difference between good and evil. They, they, they compare God almost to an absent father who, who is who is distant, who is nowhere to be seen when they, when they need help. What a thing to say of God, that He doesn't know the difference or that He doesn't care about the difference between good and evil, that He is absent and unloving towards His children. What a thing to say of God. They have wearied God by their works, and then God responds. He begins his response to these accusations from his own people with the promise of two messengers. So we're going to have to look quite closely at chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1, See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. There's messenger 1. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, messenger two, says the Lord Almighty. He's going to send His messenger. Who is His messenger? Well, Jesus Himself tells us in the presence of, of John the Baptist, He says, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you to prepare the way. I love the way that John's gospel introduces John the Baptist. There came a man sent from God. His name was John. That is a great introduction, isn't it? If you were to have an introduction in Scripture, wouldn't it be great if it was like that? There came a man sent from God. His name was Ross. 
That would be great. Okay, a man sent from God, his name was John. It's a great introduction, but it's also John's way of pointing back to the promise, isn't it, that Malachi records for us. This John is the one sent by God as a messenger to prepare the way for the Lord Jesus Christ, to prepare the way for the one who was promised. How do you prepare for a king to come? I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking, so this is the one who is coming. This is the one who the first messenger is, is, is preparing the way for. The Lord, that's a title taken by rulers and by, by kings. How do you prepare the way for a king to come? I know that, that one or two of us may remember the last time the queen was in Airdrie. If she was to announce another royal visit to this town, what would we do? How would we prepare for her coming? I, I used to have a friend, more the brother of a friend really, but he was very staunchly against the monarchy. And uh, he would say somewhat scornfully, the queen, what does she know about real life in the United Kingdom? She thinks that Britain smells of fresh paint and disinfectant. And he, he would say that with a slight sneer because as far as he was concerned, everywhere she went, she got a false picture of what life was really like because everyone prepares for the queen coming by painting and cleaning and freshening up and rebuilding. She sees everything not as it really is, but as, as people want to, to present their town or their building, or their work to her. That was his argument. Let me be quick to say before you meet me at the door, I like the Queen, I think she's done a wonderful job. <laughs> and I, I don't agree with my friend on that front. But how, how do we prepare? How do we prepare for a king or a queen to come? How did John the Baptist prepare for this Lord to come? Well, he prepared by preaching a baptism of repentance, a radical change of direction. You want to be ready to receive this Lord? You want to be ready to receive this King? Then get ready to change the course of your whole life. So that's the first messenger. Now we'll look at the second messenger. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant, that's the second messenger, whom you desire will come. The messenger of the covenant, the messenger of the promise that God has given to his people. God has promised to be faithful to his people and to build them and to, to bless them. And he had not forgotten that promise or those people because this special messenger, this coming king, this Lord would communicate the covenant in some way. He would reveal the nature of the covenant relationship between God and his people. He is the messenger of the covenant. So God has not forgotten 
He has not forgotten his promises or his people. So, what do we know about this second messenger from the text? Firstly, he is called the Lord. Secondly, he is called the messenger of the covenant. And thirdly, he will come to the temple. But isn't it interesting that Malachi doesn't say the temple? He says his temple. He will come to his temple. Who owns the temple of God? God owns the temple of God and only God. And yet Malachi says that this Lord, this messenger of the covenant will come to his temple. It's almost as if God himself will come, isn't it? And then if we kind of back up a wee bit to the start of verse 1, chapter 3. See, I will send my messenger, John the Baptist, who will prepare the way before me. This is God who is coming. God himself, God made man, God the Son, will come into the world, will come to his temple. But who, asks Malachi, who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he will appear? He will bring fire. And having studied together Malachi chapter 1 and Malachi chapter 2, we might think that the fire that he will bring would be a consuming fire. We could understand that, couldn't we? A fire that eats up, a fire that destroys. But no, this fire is presented to us in Malachi chapter 3, not as a consuming fire, but as a refining fire. Why not a consuming fire? Is it because of the goodness of God's people? Is it because of the goodness of the Israelites? Is it because of their faithfulness to their God and to, the, to one another? Clearly not because they are a profoundly unfaithful people. They have been consistently unfaithful to their gods and consistently unfaithful to one another in the way that they are living their lives. So, why does this fire of God not consume them? Why is, it, why is this fire of God a refining fire? It's because of the nature of God not because of the nature of His people. I, the Lord, verse 6, do not change, so you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. The God of justice is also the God of mercy. He is the God of covenant love, and so there is hope. And God, this God, comes into the world in the Lord Jesus Christ to look for gold, for silver. It's like he, he, he is panning for gold here, and there will be a lot of dross that is cast to the side. There will be a lot of fool's gold. You know, it, it looks as though it's gold from the outside, but Jesus will not be fooled. And so, when Jesus comes into the world, He meets with the religious, the, the, those who look morally upright, those who are 
ticking the boxes of the, the law and all the other laws that they have added on to the law. But Jesus is not fooled. Jesus sees the heart, and He is quick to testify against those who harbor sin in their hearts and refuse to fear Him. Verse 5, I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, that's the vulnerable in the society of the day, and deprive aliens of justice, but do not fear me. Those who will not fear Him are those who will not trust Him. Those who will not trust Him will cling to their sin rather than lay it down at the feet of the Lord Jesus. Jesus came to His own people. He came to His own temple, and most did not fear Him, did not trust Him. Even the religious ones, even the Pharisees and the scribes themselves, Jesus knew the wickedness of their hearts, and we can be just like them. We can be self-righteous and spiritually dead. We can carry our sins with us to the grave, to, to the judgment that is to come if we so choose. But we don't need to be like that. We are tired of carrying the weight of our sin and our guilt and our shame we can lay it down before Jesus and find rest. Come to me, says Jesus, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Two questions. Firstly, does this deny the justice of God? Let's deny the justice of God. No, it doesn't. Because when we come to Christ and ask for forgiveness uh, and have our, our, our sin and our guilt and our shame lifted from us, it's not lifted off us to be swept under the carpet. Christ takes that, that guilt and that shame and that sin upon His shoulders. He, he pays the price for our sin on the cross. He who knew no sin became sin, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. We can pay for our sin ourselves, but Christ paid for us, and in so doing, He satisfied the justice of God, but also the mercy of God and the love of God. We worship at Your feet where wrath and mercy meet. And a guilty world is washed by love's pure stream. For us he was made sin. Oh, help me take it in. Deep wounds of love cry out, Father, forgive. Second question, does that mean that life is easy? Free from suffering? Well, far from it. Suffering is part of the story. It's part of the picture. It's part of our journey in Christ Jesus. But we are assured that in our suffering, God will be with us. He will give us the grace that we need for the day that we are in. And we can be assured that He will put our suffering to work for our good and for His glory. 
not a single solitary drop will be wasted. We will share in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. We will learn to love Jesus all the more. He will refine us to burn off that dross. In us there is gold. There is something of the the image and and likeness of God Himself, but there is dross. There There is rubbish. There is other stuff. Uh, and God will be faithful to use the refiner's fire of suffering to burn away the rubbish, to burn away the dross, to make us pure as He is pure, to make us shine as He shines, to bring out His likeness in our lives. It doesn't make suffering easy but it makes a world of difference to know that God is with us, God is for us, and God is working, even in the midst of the mess, and even in the midst of our sorrow and our strife and our suffering, God is at work for our good and for His glory. Where is the God of justice? Well, we open the pages of Scripture, and we see the God of justice in the world, for us, in Christ Jesus. Not aloof, not distant, not uncaring as the Israelites had had claimed. Where is the God of justice? We open the pages of Scripture and we see Him on the cross, dying to pay the price for our sin, for our guilt, for our shame. Where is the God of justice? We open up our Bibles and we see Him on the throne, victorious over sin and death and hell, triumphant, the conquering king. And what is this conquering king doing for us at the right hand of the Father, in that place that is above all other places, on that throne that is above all other thrones? What is he doing? He is interceding for us. The Israelites wanted to put God on the dock, as many do. But before long, inevitably, all will find that God is the one who puts us on the dock. Though He is the God of justice, though we have all fallen short, we need not live in fear. We need not live in fear. The God of justice is also the God of mercy. He is the God of covenant love and faithfulness. And He is just the same today as He has always been. He is the unchanging, ever-faithful God of love. So the real question is not where is God. The real question is where am I? Where are you? Where are we? Before God. Are we in His will? Are we safe from the consuming fire that will come as we peer into Malachi, uh, the rest of chapter 3 and chapter 4? Are we in the will of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are we trusting in Him, gladly facing the flames, not of 
destruction, but the flames of refinement, that we might shine brightly for Christ Jesus our Lord. Is that where we are? I hope so. I, I, I pray so. May God give us grace to trust in Jesus, to rejoice in the justice and in the mercy of our God, and to know that every ounce of injustice and suffering that we face in Christ will be used to help us to grow in Christ-likeness and to shine uh, like the Lord Jesus Christ and to shine for the Lord Jesus Christ in this world as we hold out the word of life. If we live like that, then we will be ready, as we thought about with the boys and girls, we will be ready for that day when Christ comes again to make all things new, to put all things right, to receive the bride that he loves so deeply and dearly, to wipe every tear from our eyes and to welcome us in to this glorious new reality with God in the fullness of his love and presence. Let's bow our heads and humble our hearts in his presence for a moment as we pray. Father, we thank you for who you are, the God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. You are the God who is just and true, and you are also the God who is compassionate and merciful. We thank you for this, this day of grace. We thank you that the door of, of grace stands wide open. We thank you that all who turn to Christ and trust in Him, no matter who we are or where we've been or what we've done, are fully and freely forgiven, that we are washed clean and welcomed into the family of God forever. Help us, Father, to remember what life is like in the family of God. It's not always easy. Suffering is part of the story. But what can compare to life lived with you? and for you. Life in all of its fullness. Life lived knowing that the suffering that we face will not be wasted, but will be used for our good and for your glory. And life not only abundant, but life eternal. May we remember when the flames of the fire of, of refinement are, are, are ferocious and, and things are difficult for us, may we remember that Christ alone has the words of eternal life, that there is no one else to whom to turn. And may we press on as we seek to follow him and to grow in Christ-likeness, and to shine in His name in this world for His kingdom, for Your glory, and for our joy. In Jesus' name we pray.